happy Saturday. It is August 26th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in Los Angeles. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors who are here to take you on some very far-flung adventures today. Into the past, perhaps into the future, certainly all over the country. All over the country, which is you're in LA. Speaking of adventures, you've done Disneyland. Oh God. As you know, Michael, I have denied the existence of Disneyland to my children for many years, and this year they finally figured it out, so we took them. And I have never dreaded anything quite as much as I dreaded this trip. But I will say, Disneyland was by far my favorite trip. It was extraordinary. I can't even express it. I don't like Disney magic. I don't like magic. I don't like children except my own. Occasionally a few others. It's just so not my thing. I even stayed at the Disneyland Hotel and I had a great time. It's the Magic Kingdom. It's great. It worked its charm on you. So that's lovely. I mean, I showed up there dressed like Johnny Cash, like expecting to hate it. But it turns out, who hates Space Mountain? Like Space Mountain is just fun. It just is. I'm sorry. It just is. And everything I thought I was going to hate about it, like the food and all of that stuff. I loved. Listeners can't see at home. She's actually wearing Mickey Mouse ears right now, but yeah, I'll take a picture for you. Okay, that's a step too far. Anyway, so it turns out I thought Disneyland was going to be the worst place in the country. I was wrong, but I think Bill Cohen actually has discovered the most nefarious spot, Bohemian Grove. Right. Summer, as you say, is a time for summer camp and shenanigans. And Bill Cohen has reported on the controversy swirling around this summer at Bohemian Grove. It's the 150-year-old ultra-exclusive all-male campground for many of the most powerful men in America. So you want to hear that one. Then the literary legend Gay Talese will join us along with another magazine writers of the 60s. Talese created the new journalism with profiles such as the one he wrote for Esquire entitled Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. It is now considered the greatest magazine profile ever. And Talese will join us to talk about the story behind the writing of that story. And finally, Nick Fawkes will reveal why tastemakers and collectors are falling over themselves to get a wristwatch from the 1980s. Ashley, where would you like to begin? What ride would you like to take today? All right. Well, in the absence of Space Mountain, I think we'll have to start with Bohemian Grove because it's so newsy. I mean, Michael, this is a men's club for the wealthiest, whitest men in the universe, right? This is just like a wine-soaked, woodsy paradise outside of San Francisco in Marin County. And I'm shocked that it hasn't been canceled dozens of years ago. I mean, this place has been putting bad behavior on the map for decades at this point. And back in the aughts, these guys were accused of cutting down redwood trees to expand the footprint of their club. And now they're underpaying their staff. Shocking. We've got Bill Cohan, a writer at large for Airmail, the author of many unmissable stories and books, here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Bill. Bohemian Grove. All right, Bill. In short, for those fortunate enough not to have heard of this, tell us exactly what it is. I think the best way to describe it is this superannuated, super secret club in the Redwood section of Northern California, sort of northwest of San Francisco. It's been around for a hundred years. It's like 3,000 acres of land that they control. And it's sort of a summer camp for grown-up, mostly white men, rich and powerful white men. And then it just becomes, for three weeks in July, like a total bacchanalia. I mean, you name it, everybody from Richard Nixon to Henry Kissinger to John Kluge to Bill Gates, a who's who of white, powerful men with a twist of Clarence Thomas, of course, for Good measure. There's only one thing that is fueling the conversation at Bohemian Grove, and it is alcohol. Tell us about the drinking culture there and how that causes all kinds of insidiousness. I mean, as far as I can tell, and obviously, actually, I've never been there and certainly will now probably never get an invitation. But I mean, I can live with that. But I would say that it's 
just sort of nonstop drinking from Kahlua in the coffee to red and white wine at lunch and very high quality beverages. One person told me that at one lunch, the so-called Burgundy lunch, which is in June, which of course features wines from Burgundy, the 50 or so people at this one camp, monastery camp, consumed $175,000 worth of wine. People get blacked out, drunk, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot, apparently, of public urination, if I'm allowed to say that word, and onto the Redwoods themselves. That sounds sort of distasteful, but that apparently that's a big part of it. And my favorite little nugget is that there's this specialty cocktail that they serve called Nembutal, which is a combination of hot chocolate spiked with horse tranquilizer, Ashley, which theoretically makes you lose control of your bowels and your bladder. But Bill, as you detail in your reporting, drugs there are forbidden. If you're caught with pot, cocaine, or anything else, you're ushered off the premises. You also quote from someone saying, these guys, they basically don't want their college experiences to go away, right? They're basically going to drink until they pass out. Yeah, it's sort of like an extended frat party that you would have when you're 19 or 20, but with People having much more money, much more power, and much better alcohol. Apparently, people are like encouraged to bring a really good bottle of like tequila or something, and then like a $500 bottle of tequila or whiskey. And then they log that in as a gift, and you actually get a thank you letter from the club thanking you for the gift. And I don't know whether that makes it tax deductible or something, but as one person told me, it's very gluttonous. And its next part was not the joke. He said, inevitably, someone dies for whatever reason from too much consumption. There's actually a hospital on premises or a hospital of sorts on the premises to deal with that situation. So, Bill, do we think that the insurance liability is the reason that these guys can't manage to pay their staffers a living wage? It's taxes. The allegation is that it's some sort of quasi payroll tax and workers' compensation insurance avoidance scheme. And it's not the first time this has happened. As far as I can tell, this is like the third third time that these essentially gig workers have had to sue the Bohemian Club, which operates the Bohemian Grove, to get properly paid, to stop being paid sort of under the table. But this latest version results from three of the so-called valets. That's another nice turn of phrase. They call the chefs and the people who work at these individual camps valets. Three of the valets at this one camp, this one particularly prestigious camp, monastery camp, which has about 50 members. During the six weeks or so that they are there working, they're like working 18-hour days, six days a week, but they're only being paid for eight-hour days, five days a week. 18-hour days for six weeks straight, essentially, but they're only being paid for eight-hour days. The claim is they're severely overworked and severely underpaid, and it's like physically taxing and exhausting. And even to this day, one of the chefs at the monastery camp posted on Facebook that he was broken, broken, broken after uh, spending 20 days straight of 18-hour days at the Bohemian Grove. So I don't know what the hell is going on there. It shouldn't be that hard for these many billionaires and cumulatively with a net worth into the many 
billions to pay their employees properly. One of my favorite bits of reporting was you spoke with a valet who had expressed his discontent to one of the members of the club who's a gastroenterologist. And the gastroenterologist said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to get you the money you need. We're going to try to make this right. How much money did he actually give him as a bonus? Yeah, he said he was going to talk to his rich friends who are part of the Bohemian Grove and we're really going to step up for you this time. We really want you to stay. We know it's been tough for you. Comes back and tells him, he's able to come through for you. Do you want this in cash or in check form? He said, I'll take it. Thinking it's going to be so much, he doesn't want to walk around with a huge wad of cash. He says, he'll take it in check form. He gets back home at the end of the six-week session. And there is, in fact, a check waiting for him, $500. Bill, I have an important question for you. You cover the worlds of finance and big business. And do you think rich people are just inherently cheap? No. No, I don't. Some are penny pinchers, it sounds like. And number of the people at the Bohemian Grove are penny pinchers. It sounds like the Bohemian Grove itself is a sort of a very penny pinching organization. I saw some pictures of what it looks like there. And I had this image in my head of some sort of lavish, exotic, you know, maybe even East African safari camps like you see in pictures of safaris. And it's pretty rustic, even the nice ones. And it doesn't look, frankly, very pleasant, like you'd want to be there. But I think maybe you become so anesthetized through the consumption of alcohol that you just like are numb to the surroundings and and it probably just seems to some degree i mean if you like doing that much drinking and i think on the plus side there's probably a lot of camaraderie and there are a lot of smart successful people there and you know occasionally they give talks lakeside chats speeches as they're called and i'm sure you make good business contacts even though the conducting of business is supposed to be strictly prohibited but of course unenforceable maybe they're not investing too much in furniture and if you're walking around urinating on everything it's just it's not gonna last anyway not gonna last point? Too long. Uh, yeah but the redwoods seem to be there still, but I'm sure they must be sustaining some structural damage. All right, gentlemen, I think we've given this situation a little too much oxygen already. We're done here. Thank you both. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. All right, Michael, we'll file that under one place we don't have to go ever. Yeah, one place we don't have to go ever. And one place that sort of where people value their privacy and not revealing too much, which is kind of where gay Talese intersects with Frank Sinatra back in the day. I mean, this was the story for so many of us that got into magazines. This was what inspired us to do so. I mean, it's a profile. It's not a profile. It's an act of journalism. It's also an act of narrative. Anyway, we can't even try to quantify it because this guy is the man, the myth and the legend all rolled into one. Gay Talese is here to tell us all about his new book, Bartleby and Me. Reflections of an Old Scrivener, which will be published on September 19th by Mariner. This is the first in a four-part series with Gay from this book, so much more fun is to be had in store. Welcome, Gay Talese. Okay, Gay. In 1965, two kids from New Jersey, you and Frank Sinatra, find themselves in Hollywood. One is the most perhaps famous person in the world. The other is a young writer working on a profile of him. So how did you get this assignment that would change your life and journalism? In 1965, after almost a decade as a reporter, the New York Times, I started in 56 and 55. Ten years later, I'm 33 years old, and I had a one-year contract with Esquire. And so Esquire's editor, ex-Marine, a tough guy, son of a Baptist minister from North Carolina, Harold Hayes by name, was in charge of Esquire. And he liked some of my work at the Times, and he brought me over there for a one-year contract. And I wanted to go over there with the understanding that I could write about some of my colleagues from the Times. I was always thought, Michael, that I was working within the city room of the New York Times 
among a very interesting group of unknown people. Copy readers, reporters even were not known. We were not supposed to be known. Reporters are people who report about other people's activity, not their own. But anyway, I had an understanding with Harold Hayes that I could write about the managing editor of the New York Times. Name did Clifton Daniel, and an obituary writer. But you have to do some celebrity pieces. I want you to do Frank Sinatra, for example. I saw Harold. He's been so done. He's been so gone. He's been 30 years of the articles. What more can you say about Frank Sinatra that hasn't been said already? It's a cover story. You didn't get cover story. This is a cover story. Harold had said, your lawyer and the press agent of Sinatra, Jim Mahoney is the press agent. They already set it up. Sinatra knows it's not going to be a hatchet job, and we're not going to do a hatchet job in Sinatra. I said, okay, so just do it. Two weeks, maybe a week and a half, you come back. It's all set up. Then you do what you want to do. But when I got out there in L.A., I had a couple of friends that owned a place called the Daisy. It was one of the most important night spots in Beverly Hills. It was called the Daisy, the discotheque. We have supper, dancing, and then lunchtime crowd on the patio. And I happened to know the owner, Jack and Sally Hansen, and they invited me to dinner at their club. And at night, I saw in the bar, I saw Sinatra sitting with two blondes that nobody recognized. I didn't go over and introduce myself. I'd never seen him before. I'd never talked to him before. I had been seen him at a New York saloon called Jilly's back in some year before, but never talked to him. Coming in on the plate the night before, I read an item in some gossip column that Sinatra was having trouble with Walter Cronkite. Cronkite was doing a CBS interview show at the time, and apparently Sinatra's agent and Sinatra's lawyer were very angry that one of the people on the Cronkite show, Don Hewitt was the producer, asked questions during an interview that Sinatra gave to Walter Cronkite in Palm Springs months earlier about the mafia. Sinatra felt betrayed, angry at the press, and I read that and I thought, Jesus, Sinatra's not going to be liking me, I'm part of the press, since he's been betrayed by the illustrious Walter Cronkite, the man that America believed in beyond everybody else. I say with my guests, with Sally Hansen, Jack Hansen, some of the guests, but that's the first time I saw him. And then later on in the evening, I noticed he got up and left his two blondes. They went to a pool room, and I followed within a crowd about 100 people in that pool room. And Sinatra got into a confrontation. Michael, what I'm trying to say is I didn't talk to Sinatra, and I didn't want to talk to Sinatra because I was worried about his foul mood about the press in general because of what I read in the tabloid the day before, involving Cronkite. But also, Sinatra got into a kind of a, a little row with a, the guy in the pool room. It turned out to be a guy screenwriter that I never heard of. And he got into a little fight there, and I was able to describe it. In my notes, I have a little way of my little shirtboard notes. I made a few notes. I went to the bathroom to write more down. So this is my first scene with Sinatra. And it becomes a scene in the article that later on, six months later, was in Esquire. My confrontation with Sinatra was never pleasant because ever since the Cronkite conference betrayals, so according to Sinatra's lawyer and Sinatra himself, I felt it was on the outside. And Jim Mahoney, who was Sinatra's press agent, told me after I met him a day later, Sinatra wasn't feeling well. He had a cold. But he also had misgivings about his interview that he had once promised Harold Hayes would go smoothly. I didn't want to do the damn thing to begin with. And the agent, Mahoney, said, well, Frank, we'll send you back to New York, pay your expenses. I said, I don't know that Hayes will do that, but let me talk to him. And then Mahoney said, well, let's wait. Sancho's going to go off this weekend to Palm Springs to try to help his cold, take a weekend off. Let's wait till next Monday and see how he feels. So don't say anything to Hayes. Well, the next Monday, as promised, Jim Mahoney, the agent, drove me out to Warner Brothers Studio in Burbank, where Sancho was rehearsing for an NBC show called Sancho the Man and His Music, directed by Dwight Hemian, big, big time television director. But that's where Sinatra's voice broke. And I, the whole scene of Sinatra was rehearsing. His voice cracked and they had to cancel the whole day's work, that rehearsal. Michael, the first seeing him in the bar in a bad mood and Daisy. Days later on a Monday, seeing him, voice cracked, his cold, his demeanor was just lousy. I saw Sinatra down and out. Not out for the count, but certainly not in control. And he was a man who had to be in control because he's such a perfectionist. So those were two scenes. So it wasn't that I was doing an interview like we're doing the interview now. You have my cooperation. I 
answer whatever he wants. Sinatra wasn't going to let me talk to him at all because he didn't want me around. This was a change of reversal, of course. Earlier, I thought I was welcome. Now I'm not welcome. I'm stranded out there in L.A. Granted, in a first-class hotel and had a first-class air ticket to go back as well. So what I decided is what Hayes decided, of course. Hayes, the editor. He said, stay out there and do what you want to do. I said, I can talk to other people. So the next two or three weeks, furtively, I'll be making phone calls and sometimes seeing people. Many people, when I told them I'm writing about Sinatra, they would stop. They wouldn't want to talk to me. They're worried about Sinatra, worried about He had a lot of power. Anyway, the story I was supposed to do was done sort of on the periphery, it was on the sidelines, which wasn't alien to the way I work, because when I was a young reporter, I always wanted to do marginal characters. I always wanted to look. The character actor was more important to me than the matinee idol. So when I was marooned by Sinatra and stuck out there in L.A. without his cooperation and sometimes his scorn, I had these other people that I talked to. I talked to band leaders. I talked to second-rate actors. I talked to girls that he dated. I talked to chauffeurs of cars that he once rode in. I talked to bartenders and the clubbers and restaurant owners that he has patronized. A whole periphery of characters. And from this cadre of characters, I got a picture of Sinatra. The what I suggest was more pervasive, more complete, more exploratory, and more revealing than if I sat question and answer with Frank himself. That piece came to be known as Frank's Not Hit a Cold. And it was published in early November. He never told me if he read it. To this day, I don't know if he read it. And even though I liked the piece, I was sort of sad that it seemed to be an attack on Sinatra because I never felt animosity towards Sinatra. I never did. I was sorry that I didn't get to know him. Maybe the piece improved. Maybe if I got to know him, I couldn't do it. Because if you sometimes you're befriended by somebody, you're tied to them emotionally. And you can't tell what you believe is more the truth about them because you're beholden to them. You're afraid of them. You're protective of them. And you sort of put yourself in handcuffs as a writer that way. So maybe it's good he didn't talk to me. Here we are, more than a half century later, much to my amazement, people still read that piece. And there's no book I'm writing about. For the first time, I really described what it was like to do that piece, the good and the bad of that piece. And I'm so glad that Graydon Carter liked what I read in a forthcoming book and has agreed to put nearly all of the Sinatra stuff in airmail. I'm so grateful. You took the nightmare of any writer which is non-access being shut out by your subject and you turned it into gold is there a lesson you look back on that the writing and the reporting of the piece you learned in that moment if i have any criticism of non-fiction meaning journalism or magazine writers one of the problems is people are too educated they go to good colleges i mean ivy league college journalism today in 2003 to 2004 coming year is not the journalism i'm a mid-20th century person i was born in 1932 and i worked in the newspaper in the 1950s and when i started the 1950s we journalists were of the underclass. I'm a son of an Italian immigrant, Taylor. Most of my friends were either Jewish, Irish, some blacks, but the Jews didn't go to Harvard as they do now. They went to NYU. The Irish went to Fordham. I went to the University of Alabama. I couldn't get into Rutgers. And we identified more with working class people because my parents were tradespeople. I had a store. I was a son of a storekeeper. Most of us could identify with working people because we came out of working class people by and large. And journalism was a social step up for people by generation. It was social climbing possibilities journalism. You met powerful people. You met celebrities. You met heads of department stores. You met politicians, senators, president maybe, etc., etc., etc. Sinatra perhaps. And so, but now journalists go to Harvard and Yale and Stanford and they go to prep schools and they identify with other educated people who are journalists and they tend to be, I'm not saying they're 1%, but I'm saying that they're so removed from the kind of blue collar or high school dropout or high school graduate who works in a smaller job and doesn't have much of a voice in culture. Those people have stories to tell. 
And those people represent our society to a degree, not just the upper class people, of whom I'm sorry to say many journalists are now associate themselves with. Journalists today have houses in the Hamptons. They have swimming pools. They associate with many people that are running the government, running Wall Street. They went to school with people who run Wall Street or won the State Department. And so they're connected to the affluent way and a privileged way of life. And their writing reflects that privileged atmosphere. And then the kind of person I am, old as I am, but still there are people like me, I think, out there who want to be writers or want to be journalists that have to give voice to the underclass. Because the underclass are people who when they die, will not get obituaries because they're not newsworthy. But they are newsworthy in the sense that they are worthy of the news because they know something about the news because they're living the news and they're representative of a larger part of society that's ignored. And that's the kind of people I never ignored. So whether I'm writing about Frank Sinatra in 1965 or writing about somebody in 2020, it's always from the point of view of the person who has something to say that usually don't say it to anyone else except me. In other words, most of the people I interview are interviewed for the first time because they're sought out by people who have a sensibility such as mine to look for the underclass as a source of information. That's pretty much explains me, I think. As you noted, you spent 10 weeks reporting, writing the story. You racked up expenses of, I think, in today's dollars would be estimated to be $40,000. And you filed your draft to Mr. Hayes. It clocked in as you counted, I think, about 50 pages. Was anything cut? Michael, nothing was cut. Well, when I wrote my piece, final draft, I gave it to Harold Hayes. He ran everything. What was amazing about that piece, today, they probably want me to zoom it or do it over the phone or tape record it or email. I don't know. Or wait for this superstar to come into the Pierre Hotel and I take my tape recorder. I never had a tape recorder. I never used it. I don't know how to use a tape recorder. But the way I was working in those days, which is the way I still work, I'm basically stuck in the middle of the 20th century. I haven't changed since 1950. My way of working. I'm an archaic character for sure, but it's the way I work. I don't think I'd make it today. I don't think I could do today, the second decade of the 21st century, what I did with freedom in the middle of the 20th century. Part of the reason the tape recorder changed journalism very much. It brought the interview indoors. When I was doing my interviews with outdoors, I was following Sinatra outdoors while driving to Burbank to watch him rehearse. I was going to Las Vegas to watch him fight, watching Muhammad Ali fight Floyd Patterson in Las Vegas. I went, but now writing has become narrow and the vision of writers has become focused very narrowly on what the person says into a tape recorder. And I didn't want what the person says. I wanted what a person did or how they thought. I wanted to see, rather like a filmmaker sees a scene a character moving through a piece of territory or maybe driving across the countryside in a Mercedes-Benz convertible, I wanted to see that person in motion. And I wanted to describe the person. I wanted to describe Sinatra recording and his voice cracks. I wanted to describe Sinatra sitting at a bar with two blondes, drinking to himself and not ignoring those two women. He was so in his own thoughts. He was so remote from the scene. But there was a picture of a very lonely man, a very celebrated, world-famous man in a moment of loneliness and isolation and dissatisfaction, catching the character in a different mood than the public record you're a documentarian. That's true. What do you make of the stature this story has attained in the culture? This story that Frank Sinatra is called? Yeah. Well, number one, you have to give some credit to Sinatra for sure. Because he sang so well, and because his words could be understood, which is unlike most singers. And he sang in a way that made people think he was singing to them. I liked the fact that I had access to his story. If not to him, at least to his story. That's sort of like my kind of story, because again, I'm an outsider. I'm not part of any particular privileged group. I might dress as if I'm affluent. I'm inside 
sign of a very ordinary person. I'm a boy of the store, and I'm respectful to my cut to my parents' customers, and I'm never pushy, and I never was sedentary. It wasn't pushy. I respected his recalcitrance. I respected his ill humor. I could identify with his frustration, with his voice cracking. I could identify with the fact that he didn't want some nosy reporter chasing around, but he didn't feel good about himself. He didn't want to be seen failing with his voice or failing in making a movie or being stood up by Mia Farrow. He didn't want that to be publicized. Why should he? That's his private affair. And here's this nosy guy from New York, Gay Talese. He saw a thought invading his privacy. I wasn't really wanting to do that. I didn't want to do the piece to begin with. I always had to make a living. And this how this Marine, Harold Hayes, tough guy, leatherneck Hayes, wanted me to do what he wanted me to do. So I was saluted Hayes and did the best I could. The best I could turned out to be better than I thought. Because of not getting to Sinatra, I got to Sinatra better than if I had, I guess. And sometimes we're lucky. And I guess I was lucky that piece. Do you ever look at the story and think, eh, I wish I could added this. I would have changed this or anything you look with hindsight? I don't want to sound arrogant are self-satisfied easily because I'm not. But I do not write very quickly. I write very slowly. I start with a pencil on a yellow line pad and I write the same sentence two or three, four or five times. What I want to do is make it what is difficult look easy. I want to remember some sports writer said Joe DiMaggio makes playing center field look easy. He'd run after a fly ball not look like he was desperately seeking out the fly ball. In my prose, I wanted to make it look it was easy. Is there anything but easy? But I wanted to make it look easy. In order to do that, you have to work very hard and get the phrase like Sinatra did, resist right, the balance of the sentences, choice of words, very important, not being repetitive, very important, having a sense of scene. I am a visual person because I do tend to see, or maybe an average journalist, yeah, I hope I'm not appearing to be self-congratulatory, but when I saw Sinatra that night in the Daisy, where Sinatra was at the bar with these two blondes and his bodyguard in the corner, I saw a scene. Now, another reporter might have saw, might have looked at Sinatra sitting at the bar. I have to see him next. There is Sinatra, but I'm going to see him next Monday interview. Ah, I saw that scene as a writable scene that that can be described. Why? Because his back was to me. The two blondes were there. I could see his feet on the bar stool, the metal rung of the bar stool, polished shoes. Soles of his shoes seemed to be polished. So the reflection of the life of the bar was on those shoes somehow. Now here I'm looking at a world-renowned figure. Here I'm looking at an internationally famous figure, Sinatra. And there he is, by himself, with two blondes to whom he's paying no attention at all. I don't know if they're hookers or I don't know who the hell they were. I still don't know. And I saw there's a picture that America does not see when they look at the albums of Frank Sinatra or they see him on television or you can see him in person at some concert or maybe Las Vegas and I thought there's a picture of the bunch a lonely picture of a lonely man in the wee small hours of the morning and I described it I didn't take out my little notepad I had visual sense and that's how the piece begins I'm saying that in journalism school they don't train you I think to see scene but as a writer a visual writer what I try to do as a reporter as a non-fiction writer and a non-fiction writer takes seriously this non-fiction I'm not making but I also want to take the liberty of writing like fiction writers, like a novelist. You see Daisy Buchanan and F. Scott Fitzgerald with Great Gatsby, Hemingway's characters, you see those people. And you see those people in every great fiction writer, whether it's over the play, Arthur Miller's, you see Willie Loman, you see a picture of Willie Loman, even if you don't go to the stage and you read the script. And I wanted to have a picture of Sinatra like Willie Loman was a picture in the brain of Arthur Miller. And I wanted to see Frank Sinatra like Willie Loman in a sense. Willie Loman and Frank Loman were the same guy that moment, because Willie was there alone lonely, bedraggled figure, couldn't sell anything. And Sinatra was there that time, he was selling records, but he wasn't doing very well that night, and his girlfriend didn't show up. His 20-year-old Mia Farrell was stood him up, I think. I just had a visual picture, and that has a piece begins that way. I didn't need an interview. I didn't have to, oh, hello, Mr. Sinatra, and ask a lot of questions. I didn't want to do that anyway. Well,
Well, Gay, just listening to you, I think I feel like everyone who's listening now, which is you talk about the words on the page, but your words that you're sharing with us, so evocative, they create the worlds right in front of me, for sure, the create the scenes, I can see it. And so speaking to you, listening to you, hearing you, it's the same thrill so many of us have gotten from reading you and just oh. and those words come alive on the page and now these scenes come alive listening to you. So, Michael, you're so generous and I appreciate your Well, so grateful to you for making time. You're one of all our heroes, so thank you for everything you've done. Well, and thank you for making me feel like I'm young again <laughs> at 91. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. Michael, you went all the way to Gay's house to record that interview because he doesn't have a computer. God, I love this man. How was it? What was he like? How did you find him? Give us the gossip. Dressed impeccably as always. I was nervous about what to wear myself, but Gay, as he told me, he said, I can meet you at four o'clock in the afternoon. I said, oh, why so late? He says, I live the life of a rock star. I'm staying up very late. I get up very late. So four o'clock is basically the earliest. I was like, Gay, you're 91 years old or whatever, but he's still got it still going that's pretty incredible michael that's one for your memoirs exactly it was something that is out of time just like this story by nick Fox this week yeah it's like why buy yourself a fifty-five thousand dollar behemoth when for 65 dollars you can end up with a very stylish very functional swatch watch i mean there's something extremely cool about that nick is a columnist for the financial times in london and an expert in the world of watches and he's here to tell us what looks really cool on the wrist welcome nick So we're so happy today to have Nick Fawkes joining us. Nick, for those of you who read Airmail, know that he's one of our newer columnists, the watchman who covers all things related to watches. And usually Nick is on the high end of things. He's sort of talking about the more luxury watches, six-figure watches. But this week, he's got a great surprise for us. He's recounting the astonishing revival of Swatch, that cheap, utterly disposable watch of the 1980s that has become, strangely, a sensation to a whole new generation. So Nick, welcome to the show and tell us how we got to this strange moment in time. Thank you, Michael. You mean the strange moment of me writing about SWAT or the strange moment of SWAT becoming fashionable again? (laughs) Well, both, please. Swatch is part of a big conglomerate in Switzerland that also owns Omega, which is very famous for having made the watch that went to the moon. What SWAT and Omega did was they did a collaboration where they put what looked a bit like, or rather a lot like an Omega, into a SWAT. So you've got effectively a very faithful tribute watch to something that will start at probably sort of six thousand pounds or something convert that into dollars i think is about 1.3 something i don't know or maybe i'm being optimistic there with the exchange rate but for a couple of hundred quid so it gave everybody a taste of the omega magic but what they weren't prepared for was the sort of hysteria that greeted it i think in singapore the home affairs minister had to kind of make an announcement to say that the citizens of that great nation ought to behave a little more seemly matter because this wasn't a matter of life and death. It was the sort of drop, the drop culture and the sort of collaboration culture came to the watch industry in a very big way. So you have people who were sort of, I think the New York Times ran an article saying uh, about one guy who was sort of sleeping outside the shop and then he was told to move on by people with knives because they were taking his position at the front of the queue. Police had to be called in in several instances. I think the shop in London shut after half an hour of trading because they just couldn't cope with this demand. Now, what that was last year. What's interesting is I was quite sceptical because I'm a sort of, I'm a watch snob, basically. That's why we love you. Well, you're very kind. You're very kind. I'd love to be loved. That's a good thing. Well, I was concerned because I've been rather impressed with what they've been doing at Omega. 
I'd rather liked the good work that they've done in not only sort of paying homage to the past and the great sort of chronographs of the past and the Seamaster and all these other wonderful watches. And so I was concerned that this would trivialize that. Apparently it's done the opposite in that I hear anecdotally it's impacted them favorably, the sales. But this moon swatch has completely, probably a very inappropriate simile, but I'll make it anyway. Do you have vapes in America? Vapes, sure. Plastic cigarettes. Yeah, plastic cigarettes. Yeah. Of course we have vapes. Are they called vapes in America? Yes, sir. Well, there you go. We have vapes in England too. And apparently they make them in sort of child-friendly flavors like butterscotch and whatever else kiddies like. And there is not unsurprisingly a move to make this sort of thing illegal or whatever. But this does the same sort of thing for your young watch buyer who gets a kind of taste of the Omega Magic at a sort of very entry-level price. And also they get something that's actually intrinsically cool. It's not like buying the kind of, I can't afford the couture outfit, I'll just buy a bottle of the fragrance. It's its own thing. Do you know what I mean? It's its own culture. It's its own hype. It's its own... It really took me by surprise. And what's interesting, a year on, because I thought it would be a nine-day wonder, and of course I was, again, proved spectacularly wrong, in that there has been the inevitable backlash to a degree with people saying the hype has killed it, but there will always be trolls and detractors. And I think I'm really delighted to have been proved wrong because it's also got me looking back at the past of SWAT. And I'd sort of forgotten how innovative it was right from the get-go in the 80s, bearing in mind that Switzerland in the 1970s and 1980s, its emblematic industry of watchmaking had been slaughtered by the Far East, Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea even to a degree, I think, were making these very, very accurate, slim, inexpensive watches. What Switzerland did was take them on their own game. But I mean, in Switzerland, it's not known. I mean, I'm a big fan of Switzerland because I go there an awful lot, but it's not known always as the most sort of rapidly avant-garde culture. Do you know what I mean? It's a conservative country in many ways. But they came up with a product that was kind of pure pop at a time when the world went pure pop. I mean, if you remember things like MTV coming on, as I do, I was a kid in this sort of wonderful world of the 80s where everything was bright and pastel colored and highly produced. And they just discovered some special effect and smoke in nightclubs where you could shine lasers through. And this was the watch of that world. And I mean, they did Vivian Westwood ones. They did. I mean, they'd done recently, they've done a tie up the Basquiat estate, which is, I mean, Basquiat is another 80s sort of totem, really, that has found huge appeal with a new generation. I mean, they were suddenly everywhere, as you know, gentlemen of a certain age, and we remember those that came in those bright colors are everywhere. I look at back at it now, you didn't have one, you had 10. People were just like collecting them and they were, rather than wear one watch, they were always like swapping one in and out and being competitive with their friends as well, right? There was this whole culture around it. It was fascinating. It was. But it's a phenomenal bit of collaboration, as you've identified here, between Omega. And also internally as well. I mean, it's within the group. And I mean, also they did stuff with Bill Gates in the 80s. They were big on the Microsoft thing. It was a Luke Besson film at Cannes. And to get into the party, you had a special swatch that you had to swipe your way into the party. I mean, really interesting stuff they were doing from a marketing perspective. I mean, whereas I was looking at, at that time already, I was looking at sort of Rolexes and old Rolexes and Patek Philippe and things like that enviously. So I've only really sort of been, after immersing myself for a few days in the swatch culture. I mean, so I remember when it first launched in 82 or 83, 83, I think. There were posters going up in England saying, in Twat, the new way of telling the time is coming and all this kind of thing. And actually, the hype was very nearly justified, which is rare. 
Yeah. You and I were looking at, can I get a pair of John Lobb shoes? And it's almost like sneakerheads now. These guys were, they were just obsessing about the next to drop of this watch. And this is a fantastic piece of reporting and cultural contextualization, Nick. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Well, it's true. And it's a great way for listeners to get to know the watchman. You'll be moving on to more posh neighborhoods from this. It's a great way to show, I think, how watches are not just things we use to tell time, but style statements and they influence the culture in ways we're not even aware of sometimes. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm a huge believer in a very small object that carries a huge cultural payload. And I've been fascinated with them since I was a child. So I'm very happy to have this opportunity to share my enthusiasm. Well, thanks for being here today, Nick. I'll let you get back to the beach or wherever you are. You're very kind. It's still light out here, so I will. Look for Nick's column coming this weekend as well in the future. So thanks for being here, Nick. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Lovely to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Michael, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? I do. And speaking of summer and the end of summer and things we've done, have you seen 100 Foot Wave? Several times. I have a 10-year-old son who's obsessed with surfing. Yes. Okay. So 100 Foot Wave, as you know, it came out a couple years ago, season one. And season two came out at the beginning of the summer. I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But you don't have to be a surfer to love this, as you know, Ashley. The show won an Emmy for its first season. That's a great place to start. It tells the story of this surfer named Garrett McNamara and how he and his tiny band of misfit surfers developed a little known fishing village in Portugal into the most famous big wave surfing destination on the planet. And season two picks up where more of the characters and how their obsession and with risking their lives and the drama. Like I say, I think it's a great portrait of obsession and athleticism. I'd love to know what Charlie thinks about it, Ashley, but I think it's fantastic. It's called 100 Foot Wave and it's on Max. Well, it's so funny that you mentioned that because for Charlie's 10th birthday, we told him that we would take him on a special trip somewhere and he wants to go to Nazare, in fact, in Portugal. And because we live in London, it's extremely close. It's like a $100 flight on EasyJet to get there. So we're going to be there in October and I will report back. He thinks he can surf it. He can't. You've got to get towed in on a jet ski and uh, have a no fear of death in order to do that. I will definitely report back and let you know how it is. As you know, you just got back from Portugal yourself. There's so much to see there. But no, it's a wonderful story of perseverance and the natural world and fighting your fears and also the community of surfing, which is a really unique and special one. It's wonderful. And you, my dear, what can you recommend for us? Would you like my crib sheet to like the best possible things? to do with Disneyland, Michael. Okay, what's the best meal you had? Best meal I had at Disneyland? Honestly, it's really weird. There's a really good Italian salad at the pizza place next to Space Mountain. I think it's called Astro Pizza. It was excellent. It was like these pepperoni slices, red wine vinaigrette, spinach, like not what I was expecting at all. The food was surprisingly good. The popcorn is excellent. This was not paid for by Bob Iger. This was not paid for by Bob Iger, I assure you. But those of you who need a really great guide, DM me. That's all I'm going to say about that. It is not through the Disney park. Okay, I'm done. Okay, that's a secret. All right, Michael, on that note, thank you all for joining joining us. We wish you a wonderful weekend. Will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most Most of all, thank you again for joining us.